This episode of The Vast Majority is brought to you by Ovid.tv. Bringing together films from leading independent film distributors, Ovid.tv is the streaming service for social issue, documentary, and independent films largely unavailable anywhere else. Ovid.tv offers hundreds of documentaries on the crucial topics of today. It's the only streaming service where you'll find thought-provoking films on healthcare as a human right, climate justice, the history of working-class activism, problems with the military, and uplifting stories of solidarity. In some, independent films that speak truth to power, the kind of films you'll never find on big corporate platforms. From now until November 15th, you can save 50% off the regular monthly subscription price. Just head over to www.ovid.tv. That's www.ovid.tv. Sign up with the coupon code Jacobin at checkout, and you'll get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Hello. Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. Julia Salazar is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America in New York City who ran for New York's state Senate last year. She drew what I think we can safely say was an unprecedented amount of scrutiny, especially in a statewide race, from local, national, and even international outlets. I wondered at the time how much of that scrutiny came from inconsistencies in her biography and how much of it came from right-wing forces marshalling a large amount of resources to do opposition research on her, to literally comb the country and the globe for any piece of information that could be used as a bludgeon against her. She was campaigning as a socialist, which uh, is a political identity that a lot of wealthy and powerful people really don't like, in case you aren't aware of that. She campaigned against important sections of capital, especially the real estate industry, pissing them off. She was a young woman and thus open to all kinds of misogynist attacks. And she was pro-boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel, which Israel and its defenders see as the key international movement to shut down, especially when candidates for elected office or elected officials endorse it. I guess we'll probably never know the roots of all of those attacks, but despite them, Julia won her seat quite easily. She now represents New York's District 18 in Brooklyn, which includes Bushwick, Cypress Hills, Greenpoint, and Williamsburg, with parts of Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brownsville, and East New York. Since winning, Julia has been up to quite a bit, so I recently talked to her about what her time thus far in office has looked like. Here's Julia. Hi, Julia. Hey. Thanks for coming on. Wait, I, should, I suppose I should call you Senator Salazar. <laughs> sure, either way. Uh, hello, State Senator Julia Salazar. Hi, happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for being on. So I wanted to bring you onto the show because people heard a lot about your campaign when it was happening last year. You drew a lot of headlines. And then we, you know, especially on a national level, hear less about uh, candidates like you who win. Uh, so it's important to check in on what you all are actually doing as socialist legislators. And you've been up to quite a bit. So let's just start with the uh, the, the basic level. I mean, what has it been like uh, since you have been uh, elected and sworn in as state senator? Uh you know, it's been like drinking water from a fire hose. Um, it's been it's been quite a learning experience. Um, but I actually, it, it sounds cheesy, but uh, I really am honored every day to get to do public service full time because I think so so many people want to be able to do this work. But 
Um, but it isn't, it isn't always sustainable. It's challenging to, to serve the community, even as an organizer. Um, and so, so to get to do it full time as a legislator is really phenomenal. And, um, I, I feel very fortunate that I came in at the precise political moment when I came in because, um, there was a shift, which I can talk more about, um, a, a shift in the political dynamic in the state legislature, which has allowed us to actually be effective, within the democratic conference. And for me as a, as a socialist legislator to be effective, uh, that in a way that I, I would not have even possibly been able to a year before. Well, we'll get into what that shift has looked like in a second, but even with that shift, I assume that it is difficult for somebody who comes out of the socialist movement, comes out of working class movements, like for housing rights, uh, you know, fighting for attendance rights in New York City, and then all of a sudden to be in the state capital, which is not exactly a place that is known as particularly hospitable towards people with politics like yours and mine. Yeah, yeah, it has been challenging at times. It's, it's additionally challenging uh, as as a young woman and the the youngest member of the Senate. Um, but I, I have been pleasantly surprised. Initially, early in the session, um, I had some some encounters and didn't always feel respected as much as my colleagues uh, because I don't know I don't present or look or even sound like um, many of the the what, what the legislature is used to. Um, but over the course of of the session, um, I I think that improved a lot. Um, and, and I generally was able to, to work well with my colleagues, uh, despite, um, despite the, the clear difference in, in our worldview. Is that because they just came to respect you more after being more familiar with you? Is it because they're scared of you in this rising left movement that you represent on a, on a legislative level? What is it? Yeah, I think it's a combination of, People um, gaining a little bit more political courage um, on a personal level. Most most of my colleagues are are like on a personal level, nice and reasonable. Um, And so I think just working with them, we we got used to each other um, and were able to to form the bonds that were necessary in order to to get legislation passed and get work done. Um, But I think additionally, there people you know see where the wind is blowing in New York and they recognize that um when candidates like me and like some of my other colleagues who were newly elected this year uh when we have a base that is demanding change and demanding the kind of policies that we are standing up for um that my colleagues who previously even if they even if they don't openly identify as a socialist, they recognize that this is what the people want and that the people have the power to to elect someone else if you're not delivering that um, or or fighting for that agenda. So speaking of that, for people who don't live in New York or even do live in New York but aren't familiar with what happened in the last election cycle, you won. You're a socialist. Uh, you were elected to the state legislature. That in itself is a pretty amazing thing. Uh, but you were not the only, your victory was not the only one that, that sort of uh, spelled a sea change for the state legislature. Can, so can you briefly just spell out what it is that happened uh, during the last election cycle and what it means? 
Absolutely. In the last several years in the state legislature, we, we've for a long time had a very strong Democratic majority in the state assembly, um, in the in the lower house. Um, a, certainly a veto-proof majority, um, but in the state Senate, it's been Republican-controlled for a while, and it's been Republican-controlled because of a power-sharing agreement between the Republicans and several technically Democratic senators who chose to caucus with the Republicans. Uh, they called themselves the Independent Democratic Conference, or the IDC, and um, because because they caucused with the Republicans, it it created this de facto Republican majority that prevented uh, the state, not only the state Senate, but the state legislature from passing a ton of really urgent uh, progressive legislation, transformative legislation through in, in New York uh, for for the last several years. Uh, in the last election cycle, candidates stepped up to to run against those members of the IDC, um, the, the sort of pseudo-Democrats. I actually challenged a Democrat who technically, with at least with regard to the IDC, was a mainstream Democrat, um, although he did, his name was Senator Marty DeLon. He had taken a, a significant amount of money from the IDC's slush fund, um, but, and, and um, had also, you know, had political relationships with, with the members of the IDC um, and, you know, was really failing our, our very progressive electorate in our district in a lot of ways. Um, but because six of those IDC, uh, anti-IDC candidates won their elections, it changed to a Democratic majority this year. And now that we, we have control of the Senate, um, we're, we were able to pass a lot of legislation that had been held up. And now we're, you know, looking to do much more. Um, everything from expanding tenant protections even more to decriminalizing sex work. So before we get into those specifics, just briefly, can you explain why did these state senators do this in the first place? Why were they caucusing? Were they calling themselves Democrats but actually governing as Republicans? Why would they do that? Uh, I think that it, it was a deal that was struck where they they knew that um, – they would get more money, um, that they would receive some incentives. I think, I think from, from the governor, um, you know, the, the governor publicly, um, had opposed the IDC, but was, was kind of soft on it. And, uh, what we've, what we've seen since then is that, you know, governor Cuomo prefers, it, it gives it, it's advantageous for him, when his le- when the legislature is divided, um, and so so I really think that it had to do with um, with those senators trying to secure additional funding for their districts at the expense of uh, the rest of the state and at the expense of progressive policy. And so Cuomo could say, "Well, I would like to do some progressive policy, but we've got this divided state senate, and so we won't be able to get it through, or whatever." Just gave him an excuse. Yeah, absolutely. It would, it would give him cover. Um, and then when he would, if, if there was something that he did want to prioritize, he would be able to get it done in his way, you know, not not too far to the left, right? Not too progressive, not too transformative, um, not necessarily helping the, the people he cares less about, 
um, but helping out the people who who he ostensibly does care about. Um, and uh, so he would at least he would be able to dictate the terms and then take credit for any progressive legislation that that would pass. So you've gotten rid of these IDC people of many of these IDC people uh, and you have an actual Democratic majority in the state Senate. But I assume that's not the only thing that changed with the election of, of last year. Right. I mean, it seems like it's not just about electing any old Democrat. It's that people like you were being elected who represent an actual bold left wing vision for politics in New York state. Certainly uh, the the shift in political dynamic, the Democrats having power over the chamber does make an enormous difference. However, um, I think as, as we saw in the rent loss fight in particular, um, having these, these new senators, um, not only having a more than just a nominal majority, but having 39 Democrats in our conference, um, and, and then additionally having myself. And while I'm the only democratic socialist in the conference, um, the, the other newly elected senators are very progressive, um, and, and we're leaders in the fight for stronger tenant protections, uh, for, for stronger protections for workers, especially. So before we get into the rent laws, you know, a couple of years ago, if you had told me that someone like you would be like the only that you would be elected to the the state Senate of New York and that like (laughs) you would not be seen as a pariah as some like freak with these weird socialist politics uh and that people would be like respectfully interacting with you and working with you on all kinds of legislation it's just kind of mind-boggling that you're just there in albany in 2019 and socialism is just like oh yeah that's julia she's a socialist that's what she does like (laughs) it's just crazy yeah yeah it is pretty wild i i wasn't i was a little anxious and not sure what to expect at first either and uh you know it's been a pleasant surprise (laughs) So talk about these new rent laws that have passed and what they mean for tenants in New York. They seem like uh, they've affected a real sea change in in New York City and elsewhere. Absolutely. It's huge. So um, in in New York City and a little bit outside of the city, uh, we have a a rent stabilization system that has really been in in jeopardy for years because of, of loopholes in the uh, Real Property Act in in um, in or rather in the Real Property Law um, in the the law that governs tenant protection in New York State um, laws that would allow landlords to bring apartments out of stabilization. For example, uh, we talked about it a lot during my campaign because we're really facing a crisis at this point. Hundreds of thousands of units that. Uh, were previously rent stabilized have been destabilized, and once an apartment, you know, until you know, this changed in June when we passed the rent laws, but but previously, once an apartment was removed from rent stabilization, it, it wasn't going to be restabilized. It could be brought to market rate, and and of course, that's a de facto eviction for for a lot of families um, and a lot of of working class and low income people in New York. So. Typically, every four years, it, it was written into into the, the previous housing bills that um, there was a sunset date for the rent laws. And after that, you know, if if the rent laws were to expire, for example, without the legislature doing anything, then there wouldn't be anything to prevent 
landlords, and that actually has happened before. There's there the legislature, you know, what wasn't able to pass the rent laws on time, and so the rent laws expired, and it was a crisis for weeks. Um, and and legal aid had had to step in and protect tenants um, until the legislature got their act together. But this year we had an opportunity to not just renew the rent laws, um, and because the political dynamic had changed, we had an opportunity to actually expand them and fight for much more and not just have to play defense anymore. Um, and I introduced a bill at the beginning of the session that was referred to as a good co- the good cause eviction bill. It's part of a platform of legislation that was collectively referred to as universal rent control, uh, led by a upstate, downstate coalition called the Housing Justice for All uh, Coalition, which is now part of a a national movement. The bill that I introduced would essentially prevent landlords from being able to raise the rent an unconscionable amount um, more than, you know, it gets kind of wonky, but um, a a multiplier of of, of inflation of the local consumer price index. Um, If they raised it more than that amount, then the tenant would have, have a right to, there would actually be a legal rebuttable presumption that the tenant had a, had the right to stay, um, and the landlord couldn't couldn't raise the rent that amount because it would be you know effectively evicting someone. Um, previously, um, landlords were and and by the way this this law would have applied to units outside of the rent stabilization system. So even though it's great that we have rent stabilization in New York City um, and it affects hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, there are many more tenants across the state, in, you know, myself included, who don't live in a rent-stabilized apartment, and therefore there's nothing really codified right now that prevents the landlord from, when you go to renew your lease, uh, from from them raising the rent an astronomical amount, um, whether whether it's just because they want more rent um, and think that they can extract it from you, or because they want to evict a tenant. Um, so, so yeah, at any rate, introduced that bill um, along with a platform of legislation uh, designed to, to keep tenants in their homes and to close the loopholes that previously existed. Um, and we, we succeeded in doing that uh, also in eliminating the sunset on the rent laws. So now they're, they're permanent. Uh, it is now impossible to destabilize a stabilized apartment in New York State. And I in reading about the passage of the this these laws or this law, uh, it every every article I read about it made clear that as as big of a victory as this was, the people who are like you who fought for this bill have other bigger plans on the horizon. So can you talk about sort of what's the next step for uh, tenants' rights and for uh, capping rents in in New York? Absolutely. So ultimately, there there were nine bills in this platform because it's the consensus really is that because we had the good cause eviction bill, which was the heaviest lift, you could say the most radical of the legislation. That's why we were able to win the the, the other eight bills, um, including one called the Emergency Tenant Protection Act that um, or rather that expands the Emergency Tenant Protection Act so that. Uh, regions of the state that currently don't have any rent stabilization can opt in and establish a rent guidelines board uh, locally. Um, so, so it was a, it was a huge, huge victory for tenants. 
Um, but we do have to continue to fight to pass good cause eviction legislation so the tenants outside of, of the rent-stabilized system uh, actually have, have any real protections. Um, and ad- additionally, there are a lot of tenants in public housing across the city and across the state. There's 400,000 tenants in NYCHA alone in New York City um, who weren't impacted or were, if anything, nominally impacted by um, us passing these rent laws. Um, and so I introduced a bill this past session to establish a essentially a multimillionaire's tax. Currently in New York State, someone who earns $5 million pays the same top tax rate as someone who earns $500 million uh, per year. Um, and so uh, we would establish a multimillionaire's tax with a dedicated uh, with with the revenue from that tax being 100% dedicated to um, providing for the capital needs of public housing across the state, which are are estimated at $32 billion in capital needs uh, for for NYCHA mostly, but also for the 20% of, of the state's public housing that's outside of the city. Uh, so we're pivoting to focus on the needs of, of public housing tenants, organizing NYCHA tenants, uh, demanding that the wealthy pay their fair share and that the state, uh, because we can't rely on the federal government, right, they've disinvested in public housing. Um, the city has made an, a significant investment, but it's inadequate, um, especially when the state, you know, has has failed to um, really make a strong investment in public housing. Um, so, so both of those are really the top priorities. Obviously, most people know that New York City is a kind of ground zero for working class renters being under attack by a totally out of control rental market. Um, but it's an issue that is so prevalent elsewhere. I mean, here in Chicago, where I live, it was a gentrification and displacement was a major issue in the uh, round of municipal elections that we had this year and, and are what helped lead to the election of half a dozen uh, Democratic Socialists of America members to our city council, as well as a, a broader number of uh, progressives uh, elected to the city council. And uh, for you, uh, being a, sort of at the forefront of that battle in the in the in the in one of the cities where it's the worst, uh, I, I was reading up on uh, you know the real deal in the New York real estate news website and they they called you in June the quote bane of the real estate industry which is pretty badass yeah it's a badge of honor <laughs> <laughs> you welcome their hatred like FDR um, so besides this this what you've done on rent laws what else has been on the agenda at the uh, state legislative level yeah, so so this session um, we did a lot to protect reproductive health rights. Um, early in the session, the Reproductive Health Act, which codifies the protections of Roe v. Wade in in New York State, um, was was passed at the it was a top priority passed at the beginning of the session. Also, a bill that I introduced called the Comprehensive Contraception Care Act, which um, expands access to all FDA-approved forms of contraception to New Yorkers who previously couldn't afford it. And we we also passed landmark climate justice legislation at the state level referred to as the Climate Community Protection Act, um, establishing the, the framework for a Green New Deal and a just transition to 100% renewable energy by 2050 in New York State. 
um, in the coming session, we definitely have more work to do um, to ensure that the the mandates and the metrics set by the CCPA are actually met um, by passing legislation that that actually invests in um, in all the necessary changes that we need to make and also ensures that if there is carbon pricing, for example, um, an additional tax on the biggest polluters in the state, that the revenues from, from that are predominantly going to what are referred to as environmental justice communities, including the communities that I represent, um, people of color, working class people who have been disproportionately harmed by the effects of, um, of climate change um, and who who will be in a in a much tougher position uh, in the process of of um, transitioning to 100% renewable energy if our communities are not um, and our and the industries that we work in are not prioritized. And you've also made sex work decriminalization both an important part of your campaign for office, and then since you've been in office, uh, an important part of what you've done. Can you talk about that a little bit? Definitely. Uh, so last summer, when I was still a candidate, uh, summer of 2018. Uh, I was approached by sex worker advocates about about uh, the full decriminalization of sex work, but also about policy priorities at the time, because because we didn't know yet um, that the movement to decriminalize sex work through legislation in New York would gain as much momentum as it has gained in the last year. Uh, the priorities were really to repeal something that is called the loitering for the purpose of prostitution. Mm-hmm statute in New York State, one of the main mechanisms for criminalizing sex work um, and also a deeply discriminatory law in New York, 94% of people who are arrested for loitering, so-called loitering for the purpose of prostitution, are black women. Many of them are in my own district in Bushwick in East New York in in Brooklyn. Um, And so, so the priority at the time, and it still is a priority, is to was to re- repeal that statute, um, also to end the vice raids. Uh, the NY- NYPD's vice unit often will raid massage parlors and make arrests of, of sex workers and also, of, you know, shut down um, massage parlors where people work and, and, you know, citing that prostitution is happening there. So there's now a coalition that formed earlier this year called the Decrim NY Coalition um, that drafted a bill with my office um, to fully decriminalize sex work, uh, of course, leaving in place the various statutes in New York State related to, you know, with, to, related to minors um, or related to trafficking, but decriminalizing fully any, ex, uh, you know, ex, exchange of, of sex formerly known as of, as prostitution in the statute uh, between consenting adults. So we've just gone over fairly quickly a, a ton of stuff that you have done uh, since being in office. I'm sure there's other stuff we could talk about too. Can you talk about, uh, sort of zoom out for a minute and talk about your approach to legislating as a as a socialist legislator? I mean, we, we mentioned that you're part of this broader progressive wave of people who uh, were elected to the to the state senate, and that uh, you know you're, you're not alone in terms of like being a, a progressive voice. But it seems like you, in particular, are sort of like you hit the ground running, and you are 
uh, like leading, uh, a, at least a leading voice on many of these issues in the in the state senate. So um, I'm, I'm thinking in particular about lessons that other uh, socialists who get elected to office could take from your approach to these questions. How would you describe your strategy for, uh, you know, big picture strategy for legislating uh, and and w- with working on so many issues at the same time? Like what, what what's what's the strategy in your head behind all of that? Sure. The the direct connection between um, how I legislate um, and and how I campaigned is really about who I as a as a socialist am accountable to. Um, it was a, somewhat of a radical act that during my campaign we didn't accept and and continue to not accept any for profit real estate money, any corporate PAC money at all. Um, in New York State, uh, the real estate industry has really had an outsized influence in politics, and, and, and it's been reflected in in the you know policies that disproportionately harm tenants at, at the advantage of developers and property owners. Um, and and so it was really important that that I campaigned that way, so that upon getting elected to the legislature, especially in June when the rent laws fight really heated up, that I would be completely accountable, not just to to tenants, but just to regular New Yorkers rather than to um, to any lobbyists. And it's actually because I and and um, some of the other senators who were recently elected, we remained accountable to the people we represent that um, the, the real estate industry didn't even try to to force our hand. Um, they, they knew what was going, what was, they basically knew what was going to happen. Of course they fought and they tried to influence some of my other colleagues, but, um, the, the most valuable thing that a socialist legislate, a socialist legislator can bring in to the legislature is that, that accountability and relationship to working people. Um, and of course my relationship to the DSA, I've been a DSA member for a few years, long before I even considered, um, running for office, um, and having the, the DSA, um, and grassroots organizations inform not only the decisions that I make if I'm facing a vote, but also having, um, grassroots groups draft legislation, work cooperatively with my office um, is is really the most powerful way and most effective way that I can function as a socialist legislator. So another thing that you've been up to lately is I saw a headline about you uh, crashing a union busting meeting with the Teamsters. Yeah. So this is really fun. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a company called Wovo which um, is essentially it's an art storage facility. Um, they have a, a few locations already in New York. Some are outside of the city and one is in, in Long Island City, Queens. And they are planning to open a new warehouse in my district in Bushwick. Um, ironically, the site where Uovo is going to be opening a new art storage facility is the former B&H warehouse site. B&H being, of course, the, the company who um, we there was a, a pretty notorious labor battle there um, that 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 ended, uh, you know, that didn't end in victory for the workers, really. Um, but the DSA was very involved in, right? 
the DSA was very involved in, and I, I personally was also involved in um, with with the Laundry Workers Center and the steel workers. Um, but ultimately, that warehouse, you know, they, they moved the warehouse to New Jersey, mostly to bust the union. Um, and this this company, Rovo, recently bought that that warehouse and is um, going to be relocating there. So I have a, you know, my district has a direct stake in it as well. Um, and the Teamsters, uh, the, the local reached out to me and, and said the art handlers at, um, and, and some of the other workers, um, at the warehouse in, in Long Island city. And, and actually at some of the other warehouses had been organizing for a long time and they were ready to go public. Um, the, the, uh, management held a, a captive audience meeting, um, a couple of weeks ago at the facility in Queens. And so I went in with the workers um, and, and with the president of the local and said, you know, you need to recognize the union. Of course they said, we want to, you know, they, they told me we want to talk to our workers first. Um, and then they, they carried on with the captive audience meeting, but the workers there are, are very courageous. Um, and, and it was really, it was fun to confront the boss with them. Um, and I, I definitely think that that um, they'll be victorious soon. And what was the management response to a state senator showing up to what they thought was going to be the opportunity to have their workers held hostage and tell them why, uh, I don't know, why the union was going to steal half their paycheck or whatever? I don't think they were amused. They, I mean, they kicked me out. They kicked the president out. Um, at least they were polite about it and it, it didn't get <laughs> ugly or anything, but they said, we, you know, we want to talk to our workers by, you know, they, 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 uh, signaled pretty strongly that, that I and the president of the local of the union weren't, weren't welcome, <laughs> but yeah, the workers appreciated it. So beyond the kind of legislation that you have talked about so far that you're working on and that other progressive state legislators are working on, I'm wondering what the longer term strategic plan is in New York, both at the state level and at at the New York City level. Um, I know that uh, New York City DSA just announced uh, some endorsed candidates. I mean, what is the the plan for – DSA in terms of uh, spreading the uh, the socialist presence in the local and state legislatures. Yeah, I I know that um, there is a big effort to um, elect a lot of a lot of socialists to the city council in 2021, um, 21 and in 21 as they say um, we there are going to be 40 open seats in the New York City Council, which is, I, I mean, just a ton at once <laughs> um, uh, due to, I think, a, a change in, in term limits um, that was recently enacted at the city level. Um, but there, there are going to be 40 open seats, and so it's an opportunity to run Democratic Socialist candidates. Um, the, the council is, is definitely, you could, you, you could say, very progressive, in general right now. Um, but the difference I think of, of having democratic socialists in office is really fighting for, um, you know, a, a government that's truly accountable to working people, um, a, a government that's more participatory, um, is actually providing for 
people's basic needs um, and isn't serving, you know, the just the the owning class and the the corporate class um, at, at the state level. Uh, right, we, we're already looking at elections again. Um, we sort of one thing that we did in the legislature this session, we sort of shot ourselves in the foot. Um, we had had our primary elections were um, regular primary elections were last September in 2018. Um, but we changed the primary date for 2020 to June to synchronize it with the congressional race, which was is a is definitely it was the right decision uh, to increase turnout to try to minimize confusion for voters, everyone to be able to vote for their federal and state electives on the same day. Um, however, that means that we already have a primary um, less than two years after um, last year's election. So we. Um, I, DSA, NYC DSA has already endorsed four Democratic Socialist candidates, fantastic candidates, um, one in an assembly district in who it's my form, my former chief of staff, um, Boris Santos is running um, for the 54th assembly district. Um, Fire Front Forest is running in another assembly district. Jabari Brisport, who previously ran for council here, um, is running for state Senate and um, and Marcella is running um, a, a democratic socialist who is also a tenant organizer um, is running for state assembly as well. So, uh, and I know that NYC DSA is, I, I won't speak for them, but I, I know that they're still considering um, other candidates across the city. Um, and, and there's a, a push for a democratic socialist slate in Albany um, and, it, and essentially a democratic socialist caucus across both the assembly and the Senate. Um, I think it's a, a great opportunity to build power for, for our agenda. So we have you currently as the bane of the real estate industry, but maybe we could also get like some new people to be the bane of wall street, the bane of like wage thieving bosses. You know, we could have multiple people in the state and local legislatures who are the bane of various sections of capital in New York city, in New York state. Absolutely. Yeah. We want a caucus that's, that's not just, you know, it's fighting for the decriminalization of sex work, fighting to decommodify housing, uh, fighting for a public bank, fighting for public power um, to fully and equitably fund our public schools. You know, we really, we have our work cut out for us and, you know, a, a socialist agenda could um, attack a lot of different issues that New Yorkers are struggling with. So talk about the issue of criminal justice reform in New York. A lot of people around the country were paying attention to the heartbreaker election of, uh, we thought that Tiffany Caban had won the Queens DA uh, candidate who we thought we thought won, and then turns out that she didn't win. Um, but assumedly, the criminal justice reform movement is still very much alive in New York City. So, what's on the docket for criminal justice in New York? Yeah, the criminal legal reform movement is alive and well. Um, before I actually just to to step back a little bit, before I ran for office, um, and immediately before I was a community organizer um, within a coalition that fights for criminal legal reform and police accountability, advocating typically for, um, for, for and with families who have lost loved ones to police violence um, at the city and state level. Um, and, and so the, the issue of criminal legal reform is really, is really important to me. We, in this legislative session during the budget process, we made a huge effort to eliminate cash bail in New York 
um, there was definitely valuable success. We um, eliminated money bail for 90% of the crimes that were previously eligible for money bail in New York. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, we still have to continue to fight to completely eliminate cash bail. No, you know, it, it, wealth pays, wealth based detention is, is absolutely abhorrent. Um, and, and there's no reason, there's no justification for it. Um, so that's something we need to continue to fight against. Uh, but, but we definitely made progress. Um, we also made progress in discovery reform. We had some pretty antiquated laws regarding discovery, um, in, in New York. And so that, that'll make a big difference for defendants in criminal cases, um, and, and also speedy trial reform. Um, collectively, additionally, these new policies will go a long way in, in reducing mass incarceration in New York. Um, as just this week, there will be a vote in the city council um, whether or not to approve a proposal to build borough, borough-based jails um, as as part of the plan to close Rikers. Um, so, so it's definitely a hot issue right now. Um, earlier this year, shortly around the same time that we passed some of these reforms in the state budget, um, Tiffany Caban uh, was running for to be the Queens District Attorney and ran an extremely inspiring campaign. Um, at, on a truly decarceral platform and got within 50 votes of victory, uh, something that really, really demonstrates that, that there is popular support for, de- you know, decarceral policies um, and, and more humane uh, policies for, for dealing with criminal justice and public safety in New York. Julia, thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com. 